Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Don't forget you can listen to Times Radio on DAB, online at times.radio, on our free app, or through your smart speaker, and it even works now on Google Home, apparently. Uh, so that's all good. We thought we'd take a step away from coronavirus uh, a little bit on the show today. We talked to quite, actually quite a lot about Christmas. Can we save Christmas? We spoke to the head of Christmas, John Lewis. He's putting his tree up on November the 1st, just so you know. Uh, but we also spoke to the man, the strictly legend, that is Ed Balls. Uh, now then, uh, here on this show, we like to speak to former politicians because they tend to be a bit more open and honest than the, than the, the current ones. Uh, and I'm delighted to uh, tell you that today we're going to speak to Ed Balls. Now, famously a former backroom bruiser for Gordon Brown, stepped into the uh, light when he became a, an elected MP in 2005, quickly rose up the ranks to become a minister and then joined the cabinet as Secretary of State for Children, Schools and Families in 2007. When Labour lost power at the 2010 election, he was made Shadow Home Secretary by Ed Miliband uh, before quickly becoming Shadow Chancellor for four years, facing George Osborne across the dispatch box, had his sights on the Treasury, but then lost his seat at the 2015 election. He's since gone on to present a number of documentaries, but obviously there's only one mark of success for a former politician, and it sounds like this. Ed's just put his headphones on so he can uh, so he can listen. That is, of course, the sound of Strictly Come Dancing, which we shall talk about uh, later. But Ed joins me now. Ed Balls, welcome. It reminds me of my arena tour, that one, Matt. You're playing, playing the O2 live. Bruce Springsteen, I'm sure, is complacent <laughs> about playing the O2 live. But for I me, think... that brings it all back. How many years ago was it you did it? God, four years yeah, ago. Yeah, I think, because we, my uh, daughter's got very into Strictly Come Dancing. We've been to the O2 arena tour a few times. I think we may well have seen you. Playing that music is fine, but the opening music at the start of the show, that's the thing which makes everybody who's been on it feel <laughs> slightly sick because, you know, live, 10 million people, and you're about to do something really, really pretty wild. Well, listen, we want to talk about that, but I want to split, try and split things into sort of 50-50 because it feels like, uh, you know, I've known you, I was thinking I've known you now for like more than a decade because we knew you when you were in the, in the government, yeah. so it's much longer than that, you were in the government, but everything sort of pivots around this moment. Balls, Ed, Labour and Cooperative Party, 18,354. Jenkins, Andrea Marie, the Conservative Party candidate, 18,776. 
Therefore, I give public notice that Andrea Marie Jenkins is duly elected as the Conservative Party candidate, Member of Parliament for the Morley and Outwood constituency. Um, I should say that Ed started listening to that and then took his headphones <laughs> off. So you went from being a really big beast in politics, uh, famously obviously showbiz for ugly people, to carving out a career in actual showbiz. So what's your... Which do you prefer? Oh, I think being a cabinet minister. Actually, you know, you said backroom bruiser. I was the chief economic advisor to the Treasury, involved in eight budgets, doing enormous numbers of different things for the health service and for tackling poverty and all sorts of things. I mean, government is, it's so hard and it's such a privilege to have that opportunity to uh, to serve. And there's no doubt that that will be the, um, you know, the most difficult thing, but probably the most um, satisfying thing I've ever been involved in. Sometimes people have that moment in their career in their 50s where they kind of get to the summit. And it may be that, that for me um, and for my generation, people like Yvette, David Miliband, Ed Miliband, Douglas Alexander, Andy Burnham, although Andy's making a comeback. <laughs> but um, it may be that it was in our 30s and 40s that we were cabinet ministers. And, but that's just how it goes. Sometimes, um, you know, there's people who went into Labour politics in the mid-1970s who spent you know, 18 years in opposition and never, ever got to... Um, to, to serve in a big job. Think of Roy Hattersley or Gerald Kaufman, Neil Kinnock. So uh, we, were, we were blessed and it was hard and very satisfying. And that was the most important thing I've done. We talk quite a lot on this show about what uh, you do as a former politician. You know, we've spoken to former prime ministers and former chancellors and all that sort of stuff. And partly because, like you said, I mean, it seems to slightly change more recently, but this sort of cult of youth and politicians getting younger and younger. So you sort of find that you've been... Uh, cabinet minister or prime minister, or whatever, you know, and, and you're out of office and you're in your yeah. sort of 50s, you know, you've got, got plenty of uh, mileage left, uh, if you like, but it's quite difficult to work out what to do with yourself. And you look across the Atlantic, <laughs> there's no cult of youth happening in, <laughs> in American isn't. politics, it's kind of the other way around. But you, I think what happened in politics, it became very, very hard, professional, intense, um, and it's tough. And it's it's not something that um that uh, you know th- that you can just go into lightly it's very hard for people to arrive who haven't had kind of training to be any good at it i think people who come from the outside and think you know i've been the chief executive of a company this is going to be easy find it very hard and of course i had no preparation at all because i didn't expect to lose my seat that night david cameron didn't expect to win a majority. I did don't think he was th- expecting to have a referendum. Did you think on, the on that Union. night that you were going to become Chancellor? Were you that confident? No, no, no. I thought that was um, markedly less than 50%. What had become clear over the final week and a half, that the, the, the fear among swing voters about you know, Ed Miliband getting into bed with the SNP and the SNP writing the budget was kind of very real and tangible. And we knew we were kind of, you know, it was, um, it was going to be hard for us. But I thought my majority would go up from 1,000 in 2010, uh, not down. And um, I don't think, you know, I think we know now the Conservatives weren't expecting to, um, to win a majority, even if some of their strategists were. And, uh, but it's one of those moments in life where you just think, well, this is happening. And... Um, and you've got to see see the next stage in the positive. And I was never down about it. Even that night, once I realised there was going to be a majority for the Conservatives, there'd be a, there'd be a Labour leadership challenge, Yvette, my, my wife, was good, would, would be a candidate. I'm thinking, do I actually want to be in this Parliament? Five more years of opposition? And so I kind of stepped out of it 
did a kind of my speech that morning was very calm because I felt quite calm and sort of reflective, but with absolutely no idea what to do next, other than the fact that I didn't want to be I didn't want to be one of those politicians who looks like they're still trying to be a politician, slightly like, like a second class version of it, sort of <laughs> hanging on from the outside. I thought, well, if I'm going to go out, I should do something different. I wasn't quite expecting it to be as different as it turned out. So at what point does, does um, you know, occasional articles in The Guardian suddenly become Celebrity Bake Off and Strictly? And how, how does that sort of process happen? Well, I mean, for the first months, I mean, I really had nothing to do. And I spent a lot of time with our, our kids, which I hadn't done enough of for years. I decided that I was going to write a, like a cathartic, what I learned, moving on book. And I spent quite a lot of time over the summer thinking about, you know, what I would want to pass on to the next generation. Um, but, you know, I talked to lots of people in different uh, areas of, the wo- of, of life to realise that I, that wasn't really for me. Um, I got rung up by Larry Summers, who is former academic, former US Treasury Secretary, who asked me to come and be a fellow at the Kennedy School with him. Um, he basically said, you know, you need something to do um, and something to say but don't make any big decisions come and do this and so I went to Harvard 10 or 12 times in the that that year and then in September I got a call email saying do you fancy doing sport relief bake-off and I think I thought well that'd be really fun and you 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 were big into cooking and stuff anyway weren't you your your pulled pork I think was famous and um well as as the Secretary of State I did a cookbook we we published a cookbook which we sent to every year seven student in the country and I still these days people come up to you in the street and say still using that cookbook well there we so, are um, so you know that was I think I think cooking in school I mean, that, was, other politicians have got less for, less of a legacy than that so we, well, yeah. I've got I've got a name named after me Matt what you're talking about got I mean, a whole Ed Balls day I mean you know who, who I mean <laughs> few 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 aspire to such heights in the event that people don't know we should explain that Ed Balls day is because marks the day that you tweeted your own name let's be honest you know if, if you if, if it's Martin Luther King day you feel that is of kind of greater significance than this than this kind of embarrassing social media disaster. But, you know, I mean, you take what you can, don't you, Matt? Yeah, exactly right. 28th of, eight, 28th of April, if you want to put it in your, in your, in your diary. I, re- I, really, I really don't think people need to, to Well, they might do, they might not to. It's we, the 10th we, year we anniversary need, next year. Well, it's the t- right, write that down, 10th anniversary, we'll get you back. We need, we, need, we need all the positivity we can get at the moment. Um, just on the subject of when you were um, Secretary of State for Children's Schools yep. and Families, obviously, um, during your time in office, you didn't provide free school meals during school holidays. Do you have some sympathy for the position the Prime Minister's in now? I think politics is about being strategic and looking ahead. You always have to remember that today could be your last day, but you need to see what's happening and you need people around you who are saying, here's we're going to be in one, two, three, four weeks' time, a month's time, six months and a year. And I'm afraid that this, this Marcus Rashford campaign, which has been brilliantly handled by him, I mean, this has been a... Kind of a rolling disaster for the government. And I don't know why somebody's not just said to the Prime Minister, what are you doing for, for such a small amount of money in the context of the, of the pandemic? It's very interesting, isn't it, how all those years of austerity, rising concerns about um, child poverty on the way up, food banks, 
And then something has happened during the pandemic, which has really crystallised um, you know, a concern about child poverty, which was, was different from our time in government. We had child poverty coming down. What we were doing was talking about universal free school meals for three, four and five year olds. We were putting money into tax credits, but we had a sort of a universal message about Sheer Start Children's Centres. But that is a shift in, in the pandemic. And, you know, um, in a vet's constituency up in Castleford, local pub, the Magnet Pub, um, has been deluged with people, people who don't have a huge amount themselves, coming in and donating food into the pub, oh, which is now distributing free free lunches at lunchtime for kids who otherwise won't eat because they're on from a low income family, from a free school meal family, and it's amazing. But how could the government not have seen that 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 coming? It's it you, feels you know, as though you the, the know government. What it's the, like though that sometimes in, when you're in the middle of government, there's so much stuff going on. And you get a bit hunkered down, and because so often, if you ignore something, it go, does go away. And this one, it isn't going away. And well, so you have to have antennae. You have to have people looking ahead. It was obvious after the summer when the government had moved on supporting free school lunches um, for for for, um, for 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 kids who otherwise wouldn't get to eat properly in the summer. It was obvious that half term was the next flashpoint, and. <laughs> People should have been saying in September, what's going on? And what you know in politics is sometimes you're sort of thinking it's going to go away, maybe it won't become an issue. But sometimes you feel that sort of tautness in your stomach which says, you know, actually, this is a real problem. What are we going to do? And that is what it is to have political antennae. And if you haven't got them, you need to have other people around you who who do. There's all this talk. I was reading a blog by... um, David McBride, who I used to work with in, in government about this just a couple of weeks ago, about the grid. And what the grid and that sort of pre-planning did, it wasn't simply about organising events. Um, you know, it wasn't simply about who's going to do the launch in two weeks' time. It was what's coming up and are we prepared? And the government is on this issue just looks so reactive and behind the, the curve. And it clearly jars for with what it was trying to say in the election to so many... Um, families in the north of England um, where, where they won seats for the first time. So it does feel like a real failure of politics. If you enjoy listening to Times journalists and commentators here on the podcast, well, you can now subscribe to The Times. Don't miss our flash sale. Subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times with 50% off for six months. But the sale ends this Friday, the 30th of October at five o'clock. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What does it say about politics that, that Marcus Rashford's essentially the leader of the opposition right now? How do you think Keir Starmer's doing? Well, no, I think, I think let's say, first of all, I think Keir Starmer's doing, doing well. But before that, you are right about Marcus Rashford. I mean, there's, I mean, he's, he's, he's obviously very talented, but, you know, mainly scoring goals for Man United. <laughs> and, um, but he, he has a, a, a reason to care about this, this campaign. I think the thing which worries me is that if you, at the moment, we still live in a society where if a politician says, this is a problem, what are we going to do about it? People think, well, you know, politics, playing politics, you know, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? You know, Yaboo. Um, do they have an interest in it? Whereas actually an, an outsider can, with authenticity, make an argument and people will listen to that. But that is that is a, you know, his work hugely to not just his, but to thousands of children around the Absolutely. country over the last few months. So it's brilliant. Um, but I do think there is a task we have still to um, to revive the idea that politics is something which... You know, you can believe in and which can change things for good. In a democracy, you get the politicians you deserve. And if you decide that politicians are all the same and they're not for us, then you end up with the outsiders succeeding, which has been the American story for the last four years. How do you think, what, what mark out of 10 would you give Keir Starmer so far? He's, what, six months into his leadership? Well, I, th- I mean, I think I would give him eight. Um, I think it's, it's still very early days. And, um, but what a massive change it is compared to um, the way in which Labour was performing in the polls, but also in Parliament under Jeremy Corbyn. So it's, it's a huge change, which is, um, I think, brought Labour back um, to be, you know, an effective potential party of government. Um, I think on the one hand, he's been careful and forensic in Parliament, which has been very effective at a time when the government needs to be questioned. But he's also been very careful um, to, to on the issues he's chosen um, to be very tough on tackling anti-Semitism, but also to be clear that Labour stands for a patriotic vision of of Britain, and that was the the theme of his conference speech. You can't win in Britain, Labour or Conservative, as the anti-Britain party, the anti-UK party. You know, we can have a debate about what patriotism means and how much patriotism means we should change things rather than keep them the same. But, you know, the great 1945 manifesto and Labour government was one on a patriotic vision for change. And unless you stand for, for Britain moving forward, then you can't succeed. And I'm afraid that it looked as though Labour was, you know, was, was distancing itself from patriotism and, and pride in our country. Keir's turned that round uh, in the last months. But there's a long way to go because, you know, I think what the polls say is that there's lots of those Labour voters who've still got to be won back, who haven't come back yet to Labour. And, you know, at this time in a parliament, you might hope as the opposition to be 10, 15 points ahead in the polls rather than one or two. So there's a long way to go. You think he should be by now? 
I think that um, you have to see where this began. I mean, there's uh, people are still, I think, out there in the country realising that Sir Jeremy Corbyn isn't yeah. the leader of the Labour Party and Labour is changing. Um, and this is also a time in a pandemic where you want a sense of, of, of unity. So I'm not, I, I think he's been careful, certainly early on, to support the government rather than to, to, to attack it. So I don't think he's been looking for... Um, you know, to fight an election this year because he's not. There's no yeah. chance of that. Um, you mentioned anti-Semitism. It's obviously a big uh, issue under Jeremy Corbyn. It's all going to be reopened. The sore is going to be reopened again tomorrow and we get this Equality and Human Rights Commission report into um, Labour's handling of it and whether or not it was institutionally racist. How how much damage did that do to the Labour Party? I think it did a huge amount of damage. And the reason it did damage wasn't necessarily because of anti-Semitism. For some people, it was hugely offensive that Labour did not tackle this, this, this terrible thing, anti-Semitism. And clearly in the Jewish community, but more generally in people who, who, who care um, very much about um, th- that. It was, it was very upsetting. But I think for lots of people more widely, they felt as though, well, there was a problem here. And it wasn't being gripped by a leader who was supposed to, to lead. And uh, I mean, there was this kind of tragic article a couple of days ago by Jeremy's former chief of staff, Carrie Murphy, in which she, she tries to claim that somehow, I, th- I think the argument is, even though Jeremy was the leader, he wasn't really in charge because he was being subverted by the Labour Party staff and it was only when the general secretary ship changed. But I mean, you know, it's, it's the typical kind of outsider, rather Trumpian strategy, to be in charge and say, I'm still in opposition, somebody else is really in control. I mean, the, 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 what happened, I fear, was that um, if Jeremy had come out quickly in a very clear way and said not only that anti-Semitism is wrong, but that it will be rooted out in the Labour Party and that there are things I have done and said in the past which I now regret and I apologise for, things could have moved on. I don't think Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite. He's not a racist man. But he undoubtedly not only stood with anti-Semitic people, but said things which were anti-Semitic. And because he wasn't able to acknowledge that, his sort of anti-American, anti-liberal, anti-capitalist belief in his own anti-racist credentials, I think blinded him to the reality, which is if you say to, um, you know, to, to Jews who've been in our country for a very long time, as he said in 2013, they still don't understand English irony, that somehow they are outsiders, they are, because of their Jewishness, that means that they are sort of foreigners in, in their own country, that is anti-Semitic. And if the leader can't acknowledge that and apologise and move on, it means that the whole party is then hamstrung in tackling the genuine anti-Semites who've always believed those anti-Semitic tropes and want to use it for their own political reasons. And so it was a tragedy and a disaster. I've been the with Lord Eric Pickles, the chair of the Holocaust Memorial Foundation. About this is the idea of creating a Holocaust Memorial right outside uh, Parliament. I mean, it was embarrassing for me that, yeah. that Labour was in this state. But I was on the commission from 2014 and the foundation. And there has been, and we, we, we continue to have till now, um, we still do, um, and strengthen 
by Kia, cross-party support to build a memorial next to Parliament. And we're currently in the, the public inquiry, the planning inquiry, um, to, to decide finally that that's the right place to, to cite it. Do you think if the report is critical of Jeremy Corbyn's handling of it, should Keir Starmer consider whether or not Jeremy Corbyn should be in the Labour Party? Well, I um, don't think that Jeremy Corbyn um, is an anti-Semite. But I do think that he stood next to memorials with people. And and other people have been kicked out of political parties for saying things which are racist or anti-Semitic before. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn should still be in the Labour Party? I think that um, Keir Starmer is going going to want to move on. I don't think Keir Starmer will or should kick Jeremy Corbyn out of the um, Labour Party. He's clearly said things when he was leader to distance himself from the anti-Semitism which was happening at that time. Um, I think the problem was he could never do that with sufficient volume and commitment because of some of the things which had happened um, in, in, his, in his past and that hamstrung Labour during that period. And I think what Keir is very clear, he's, he's supporting the memorial. Yeah. Um, we, we, um, there is now a clear Labour commitment to, um, to rooting out anti-Semitism, um, which, which, to be fair, had begun um, in the final period of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership as well. And, you know, if there's criticism in this report, I think Keir will want to take it on the chin and acknowledge it, apologise and move yeah, on. Move That's on. the right thing. Um, I should talk to you about, uh, you, you also, I mentioned you were Shadow Chancellor for four years for uh, Ed Miliband. What would you be doing now? I mean, what part of the criticism of the Labour operation right now, and particularly Annalisa Dodds as Shadow Chancellor, is it she's, she's a bit below the radar, a bit low profile. What can you do as Shadow Chancellor to sort of insert yourself into into the, what is a massive, you know, if you part the health impact of coronavirus, the economy is one of the biggest stories in town. And Labour don't seem to be really part of that. Well, I think, I think in the first period, back in uh, March, April, when the, the government health handling of the crisis was kind of, let's be honest, all over the place in that period, and the scientific advice was, 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 was weak and the government didn't challenge and didn't respond. I think in that period, the Treasury handling of the crisis was um, was very, very effective. Um, the Treasury and the Bank of England, I think Rishi Sunak did a very, very good job in the early period. He really responded in a very aggressive way. I mean, taking huge risks for a Conservative Chancellor, but the right thing to do. I think the reality is that the messaging then went wrong in the summer, because um, the trouble with Eat Out to Help Out was it gave the impression that the problem had moved on, that we were in the recovery phase, um, that you know, the Prime Minister was encouraging everybody to go on holiday. And I think the, the, the reality um, is that, that um, the, the, the responses from the Treasury in September were insufficient and they've had to now strengthen them because they kind of believe their own rhetoric. To be fair, during that period, in the first period, I think Labour was right to support the government on the economy because people want a sense of national effort and purpose. I think that um, in the second period, since September, um, Labour's been making the right arguments. I think Annalise Dodders has made the right arguments. But um, you know, it, it's hard uh, in, a, in, in a pandemic to be, to be heard. And, um, so, uh, and I also think that the, the challenge for her and for Kia is that there's such uncertainty. Anything they say now is going to be... Um, they'll be held to for the next three or four years. And they don't quite know 
how things are going to turn out in the next one or two years. So they, it, it, it's, it's, it's not an easy situation for them. Yeah, and if, if the government changes its mind every week, you know, inevitably the opposition has to do the same thing and react to, react to events. I will ask you about Strictly in just a sec, but I want to talk about American politics. But, and uh, just a reminder, you know, you went off to America and made some documentaries. Let's just take a quick listen to a clip. In the ring, it's easy to see how the crowd takes sides with the Patriots. Do you know what? You have the rudest president we've ever seen. So that was a terrific series you made for the BBC where you'd, you'd sort of toured about, I mean, apart from, I mean, I say terrific, you were in Lycra in a, in a wrestling ring. The leotard was, you know, <laughs> they actually wanted me to wear the leotard without boxer shorts and that would have made me look like Big Daddy, which <laughs> anybody over 50 will understand the cultural reference and I, and I said no to that. But actually that, that wrestling ring, the way in which the wrestlers kind of tell a story of good versus evil, America versus the world... You know, Crooked Hillary. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is an American wrestling name. What Trump did was he used the style of WWE wrestling to say, I am the American hero and I will not have these outsiders undermining who we are. So, uh, given, because it was really interesting, you, you felt like you got under the skin of a lot of, uh, particularly Trump voters, in a way that some other documentaries, when the Brits go to America, they just go, oh, they're all terrible people, people. You know, you really got into the skin of them. So what do you think is going to happen in the election next week? Well, I think... I thought the EU referendum would be tight, but um, I thought Remain would just win, and I thought Theresa May would just win a majority. So um, we've kind of... And I thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the last presidential <laughs> election. So you have to be quite careful at the moment about forecasting. Um, and... There's a lot of residual, strong Trump support still there, especially especially amongst working-age Americans. Working-age Americans for whom he was the outsider, mm. the business guy who was going to run against Washington, the guy who, who would deliver um, a better deal for them. People who, would, people who would say, think about Trumpers, they would say, he's not in it for the money. He's already rich, so he can be for us. But I think the thing which changed with the pandemic is there were lots of older Americans who were fearful of the world. And in 2016, Trump said, you should be fearful of outsiders, I'll build a wall. And what's happened over the course of this, this year is those people who have, are fearful are not fearful about outsiders, despite his attempts to blame the Chinese. It's a pandemic and a virus which is happening in America. It's particularly hitting older voters and I'm afraid that every time Trump has sort of pranced around trying to deny the threat or belittle it, which works for a certain kind of younger American voter, I think it's made the older voters more afraid. And in the opinion polls, the big change is that while he was leading even a year ago amongst the over 65s, that is switched. Yeah. And he is now clearly behind. Older voters are thinking, I am afraid and maybe I'm afraid of you. And I think that will probably be the thing which... Um, which does for him, as well as clearly turn out amongst younger uh, voters as well, which is surging. Um, just before I let you go, I need to ask you about... Well, put your headphones on so we can, we can scare the bejesus out of you with the... Um, with the uh, take a listen to this. <laughs> so you were at the top of the stairs waiting to go down and, and panicking. We were at the top. It was always simultaneously exciting and... Um, and fearful, but also, and I, I, so many times I stood there as they were announcing, you know, dancing a samba. 
<laughs> Ed Balls and his partner, Katia Jones. And I was standing there thinking, in that moment, what am I doing? <laughs> How did I end up here? I wanted to be chance for the Exchequer. What, what am I, this is live on television. But then you think, oh, well. How, how bad can it be compared to politics is so hard and this was always going to be fun and actually people enjoyed it even if it went uh, even if it went wrong and um so it was jeremy vine said to me it'd be the most life-affirming thing that you've ever done and that is absolutely the case and when i spoke to jackie smith um a labor home secretary now on strictly that said to us you've just got to you've got to put your old persona aside you can't be a politician on that stage you've got to get into the character totally commit love every minute and if you try hard the audience will come with you uh final question one word answer who's going to win this year gosh i i think i I think well it's always hard to know because when you look at the first show that's not a one word answer when you look at the um, (laughs) so you're still a politician despite five years of being in showbiz it's generally the case in strictly that the best two dancers on week one don't end up yeah. going on to win. Look, Maisie was yeah. astonishing. And the guy who seems to have um, failed his key stage two English test and therefore has no vowels in his name was also absolutely... <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure. How do we say it? Harvey. It's just Harvey. You just pronounce Harvey. it yeah, without the You say thing. that? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he was, he was brilliant. But I think that what happens in Strictly is the person who... I mean, not like me. The person who ends up being really good, but who improves and really tries and captures people's hearts and imaginations. Aurea Duba was that in yeah. our year. Stacey Dooley was that in, uh, you know, the, the year um, after. I mean, that's the person to watch. And I, I think it won't be Bill Bailey, but he started well. <laughs> he has started well. He's basically the Ed Balls of this year, I think. Yeah, well, hang on a sec. I mean, I, I would never... I mean, <laughs> that haircut. What's he doing? Cut your hair. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. <laughs>